Today is a special day. Today is Mother's Day. Could we give a hand for the mothers in our life, the mothers in this room, the mothers in this world? A friend of mine who's a pastor, um, I felt he's, he's written some very thoughtful words that have really moved me and kind of helped me pastor a day like today. I'm just going to read some of his reflections. Um, Mother's Day is a wonderful day to celebrate so many women in our world and in our church in particular. And even though it's a time of joy and celebration, it's also a time to acknowledge the debt of gratitude that we have for our mothers. And at the same time, Mother's Day carries so many emotions and experiences. And for some, it's quite difficult. And we name that because perhaps today you're here and maybe you've lost your mother or maybe you're a mom that's lost a child or maybe you're a woman who's been trying to have a child but you haven't been successful and maybe you're single and you're waiting to meet the right person and it's challenging and this day kind of conjures up different pain. For those reasons and many others, it's complicated. And at the same token, it's also a day that for some women, none of these things are a factor and it's a day that they rightly deserve to be celebrated. So we recognize that it's very complex, but there's two things that I think are worth acknowledging, that whether you have children or not, you're called to be a spiritual mother and that birthing and nurturing children in the kingdom of God is such an incredible calling. And the second thing, that your identity as a woman is not determined whether you are a biological mother or not. Your identity is based on the truth that you are loved unconditionally by God. And that's where your identity is found. And so to the mothers in this room, we honor you, we celebrate you, we love you. We're so grateful for the ways that you carry the image of God and the dignity and the beauty that you bring into our world. We love you and we celebrate you with all of our hearts. Can we give the mothers in this room, in our lives, another hand? We're so grateful for you. Thank God for you. As we go to scripture, we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Romans. And we're going to pick up where we left off. And we're going to read the passage of scripture we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to gather with your people, and to come with expectant hearts to your word. We so desperately are asking you to speak, to meet us, to open our hearts to your scripture. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence here. Would you glorify Jesus, reveal him to each and every one of us afresh. Meet us now, we pray, Father, in the fullness of your love. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I remember as a young pastor, um, there was a situation that I felt was definitely above, as they say, above my pay grade. Um, I was very idealistic, very um, hopeful, and being a pastor in those early days was a crash course in reality, realizing that people are far more complex, they're far more delicate, there's far more nuances. And I found myself as a young pastor interacting with this man who um, reached out in a moment of deep desperation. He was actually about to jump off a bridge. And he reached out in this moment, and I'm meeting with him, and I'm like, God, I don't know what to say, what to do. This is uh, by far one of the most intense situations that I've ever been thrust in. I immediately go to meet with him. And in the process of meeting with him, he begins to share what led him to that moment. And for him, what led him to that moment was what he described as a debilitating addiction. His family, and in particular his marriage, had suffered for so many years because in essence this was what his life was like and what their life was like. When he would get paid, there was always a roll of the dice. Is he coming home or will we see him a couple days from now? And a couple days from now would often be the spouse tracking him down breaking through a hotel door and finding him absolutely strung out. His marriage was about to fall apart. He'd reached the end of his tether. And for him, the gateway thing that would cause this whole episode to keep happening was alcohol. He would end up doing other really hard drugs that would take him down these really awful paths, but it would start with him but a drink. And so it, he, he admitted he was never a casual drinker. He would drink to a point where he would numb himself and then it would just take the foot off the brake. I'll be honest, those first couple of meetings, I tried my best to be hopeful. It felt very dire. Um, but God does miracles. God does amazing miracles. And I can testify that today their marriage is still going strong 
that God has restored so much in their life. But I was surprised at what actually turned the corner for them. I didn't see this. I thought maybe the, tor- the, the corner could turn for them if this happened, this happened. None of the things that I thought might be necessary ended up saving the situation. The thing that actually God used was something I didn't even know existed. Apparently, there's a pill that someone can take who's trying to kick alcoholism, and if you take this pill and then you have even one drink, you violently throw up. And so this pill is kind of like an incentive of like, I can't kick this, and if left to myself, I'm going to do this. So to safeguard, I'm going to take this pill, and then taking this pill is going to kind of insulate me from potentially going down the path. He described what became holy, sacred space every morning in their, in their home. It was this. He would meet with his wife in the kitchen, and she would extend out of her hand this pill. They would pray, and he would take the pill. He said often it was filled with tears in that moment and just unbelievably deep emotions because this was a moment every time he took that pill, he was acknowledging, I'm powerless to do this on my own. I've hurt you and our family, and she's extending another olive branch of hopefulness. When I caught up with him and he shared this, I was blown away, especially by the description of he he didn't start to get better until he faced what was really sick and broken inside and kept facing it every single day He kept facing it. I start there because the passage we just read, and for the next couple weeks that we're going to begin to journey in, as I've shared before, the book of Romans is one of the most dense books of the Bible. Uh, It's such heavy content, and it gives very powerful and unflattering at times, especially the first couple chapters, appraisals of us. One of the things that gives me great confidence to know that the Bible is the inspired word of God and not some man-made document is because if we would have wrote it, we would have been way more flattering to ourselves. We would have put something in there that would have made us feel a little bit better. Yet the Bible gives us these unbelievably scathing at times, just like precision-like appraisals of who we are. And Romans 1 gives us some really difficult truths. And I want to pastorally urge you today, in the next couple weeks, to lean in with your heart and, and to lean in in a way anticipating and knowing that some of the things that we're going to get into may offend. They may hurt. They may disorient. You may not like me after these next couple weeks. I'm, I'm literally preparing for that emotionally. We've had a good run, right? It's been fantastic. And so please uh, remember that. Um, have some empathy if the next couple of weeks changes things up and prompts you to write um, some difficult emails or have to have some challenging conversations. But there's really no way, if we're going to be faithful to teach Scripture, 
we can't cherry pick the verses that we like and ignore the ones that, nah, this doesn't really fit um, what I want to hear. If we're going to heal as people, like my friend, we got to face some difficult things about ourselves. And here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is you will never find from anywhere a clearer description of who we are than what you find in the Bible. Every other thought system, ideology, religion doesn't quite appraise us as accurately as the Bible does. You'll never find a more, a clearer description. And why is that important? It's because if you and I don't know who we really are, how we've been created, and how we've been damaged and impacted by this scriptural idea called sin, then we will be delusional about ourselves. We will end up either like imagining that we're far healthier than we actually are, we'll romanticize our goodness rather, you know, to a degree that diminishes the clarity around who we are in our broken spaces, we won't have the most accurate picture. So the good news is, when we read the scriptures, we come face to face, contact with who we are. How many want to know who they are? Like it, 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 a lifetime of not knowing who you are, not knowing the truth about you, that is an awful prison to be confined in. If you want to know who you are, the good news is the scriptures give us that picture. The bad news is that the picture it gives us is not always flattering. So what does Romans 1 tell us about us? What's the truth about us that is worth wrestling with and facing and actually explains us in the most succinct, clear way what we derive from Romans 1, these verses that we just read, is this powerful truth that every human being, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, Every person in this room, and this is a diverse room, look at this room, so many different ethnicities and, and, and stories and seasons of life and uh, all these different backgrounds, and yet with all that diversity, we all share a common DNA in that we are fundamentally worshipers. You and I, if you want to understand human beings, you can't understand us, we can't understand ourselves without first understanding that at our core, we are most functional, we thrive the most, life makes the most sense when we live as worshipers. Because that's who we are. And here's the thing. Some of you say, of course I'm a worshiper. I'm in this room, Chris. I woke up. I, I came here to sing and pray. No, I'm talking about anyone in this room that you're not a follower of Jesus. You're like, I don't, I don't even know why I'm here. You know, like, when's this over? Like, what, you are a worshiper. I'll take it further. Someone out there in, the, in your world, in your workplace, your family, that is like outright antagonistic toward the idea of God, and God doesn't exist wherever they land, they're a worshiper too. Every person is a worshiper. And this is a tough thing for us in our modern age uh, to kind of land on and, and come to agree with because 
the idea of all of us being worshipers feels very primitive. It feels like it's coming from a pre-modern culture and we have all this tech and we're all advanced. And that sounds so like simple. And yet, scratch the surface and get to our core. All we do is worship. Marketers know that all we do is worship. And they create campaigns intentionally to say, what worship button are we going to push? Is it going to be sex? Is it going to be pleasure? Is it going to be money? Is it going to be power? They, they, they know. They fiddle with us. They're playing with us because they have actually sometimes a clearer assessment of who we are than we do ourselves. Look at how we get when the new iPhone comes out. Look at how we get when there's a new restaurant that we visited or a new vacation spot. Try to suppress someone's desire that comes out automatically to be an evangelist for the thing that you love. And this is non-religious people. It, try to stop it. You can't because it's so deep within us. It's so deep within us to share, to like proclaim, to exalt, to like put before other people the things that move us, that we even share like bad things with each other evangelistically and energetically. It's, it's, we can't help ourselves. It's so deep. We're worshipers, whether it's about something or maybe it's about our nationality. Um, we're proud of our ethnicity and where we come from, but then it turns a corner sometimes, and we're so proud to the detriment of other cultures. Uh, there, there, there's something in us left to ourselves. We are just worshipers waiting for something to worship. So it's never a question of, are you worshiping? It's always a question of what are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? For some, they worship their cars. I remember in my old church, there was a block I had to go up every Sunday, and there was a man, when he washed his car, this was like love. Just like he had a special bond with this truck. It was like I, I felt awkward, like the way when two people are kissing and you don't want to look. I, that's what it felt like. When I was driving by, I was like, I, I need to give the guy his privacy. You know, like it was just, it, it, it was intense. Or sometimes the way we talk about our jobs or we talk about our kids or we talk about uh, places we want to go to, it, they you can hear there's a certain line, there's a certain pitch where it goes from, I don't think we're talking about something that we're mildly interested in. It sounds like we're talking about something that if it was removed from our life, our life would crumble. It's never a matter if we're worshiping. It's always a question of what are we worshiping? We're always worshiping, every single human being. But then Romans 1 gives us this powerful insight about who we are. We're going to go to the verse again. It tells us this, verse 18 and onward. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And hear this, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Going down to verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Here is our struggle that Paul is telling us after he establishes or kind of unearths this sweeping appraisal of human history that the history of mankind is just a history of worship. From beginning to now, it's just these epic scenes of people worshiping, but at different times they worship empire, they worship violence, they worship power, they worship money, they worship uh, pleasure, they worship all these different things. And the crux of it is that statement that they exchange the glory of the creator for created things. They worshiped created things in the place that only the creator rightly deserved. This is our core struggle. We are worshipers, but we end up worshiping created things rather than the creator. It's simple, but unbelievably profound. Inside of each of us, is like almost like this homing device that's just like pulling us toward something. And that something is something that we're going to worship. But unfortunately, the way sin has impacted us, rather than us going toward God, and, and the scripture says he's clearly visible, he's seen, his attributes are undeniable, his creative power, his essence is out there. And yet, despite all this ample evidence, rather than worshiping the creator, we worship creation. This is what the Bible describes as idolatry. Idolatry. Now, some of us in our day and age, 2023, and depending on your background, you're like, I'm not an idol. I'm not an idol worshiper. I don't commit idolatry. Come to my house. There's no statues, there's no icons. There's no images that I'm praying to because we have this idea that idolatry is strictly pegged to this ancient practice of worshiping at a religious site or worshiping a man-made image and ascribing that man-made image or statue with divine power and authority. But what we read from Romans 1, it goes deeper. It's far deeper than just worshiping a statue or uh, an icon or, or, or ascribing divine status to a person Actually, what's the undercurrent is this, like, verve in our soul, this, this, this bent in our hearts that exchanges God for the things that God created. It's this, it describes this life of almost like a continuous, active, because it actually says they suppress the truth about God, so it's like God is visible in creation, but also in our conscience. When, it becomes a, when we become aware of him, it describes us as actively forgetting God. Actively forgetting God. Now, 
How many people in this room would describe yourself as a forgetful person? It's okay. Raise your hand. Some of you forgot you're a forgetful person. You're like, oh, that's me. And so it, there, that, that's why we have all these devices created. And, and I'm convinced that the people who created these devices were married to very forgetful people. And so they were just like, I need to create something to help my loved one. Um, at least that's what a friend told me years ago. And it made sense. It was like the people who created these day planners were probably married to someone who didn't use a day planner. And it was like, this could really help you out, i.e., help us out. And so it's one thing to forget. We all forget all the time. I got a confession. It's really bad. So I'm, I'm warning you. Um, <laughs> you're probably going to think a little less of me, um, which is fine. I don't always remember the names of my kids' teachers. You're like, oh, it's not that bad, Chris. I got one more for you. I don't always remember the grades that they're in. <laughs> it is an ongoing source of deep disappointment for my wife. She looks at me and is like, how? Why? This, what? And so it all came to a cataclysmic head during covid where one of my kids, uh, like, it's crazy. COVID swept through my house multiple times. By God's grace, I never got it. And so, but what that meant was I was the one alive in the world while everybody was out there. So, oh, Chris, go to the kid's school and get homework because everybody's here. And so I'm going. I go talk to the security guard. And I'm like, hey, I came to, uh, he knew I was coming. It was like, because uh, there was a coordination. I'm like, I came to pick up um, Luke Hernandez's uh, homework. And he's like, okay, sure, Mr. Hernandez. Um, uh, what? Uh, what's his teacher's name? And, uh, I, I, no, it's okay, Mr. It's okay. Um, what's his grade? And I'm like, oh, dang it. <laughs> and so I call my wife. I text her something. And again, the, the deep disappointment. Why? And then I, I go and tell him. And then he, he was so gracious. He actually slightly healed my soul because I was feeling very bad. He was like, can I tell you something, Mr. Hernandez? All the dads are like this. And so he walked away. I was like, thank you. It, it's, it's a magnitude of difference between forgetting something haphazardly to what Romans 1 describes. What you and I do, what people do with respect to God, it's not like we're haphazardly forgetful and say, oh, I forgot that God exists, that I'm his creation that he's true, and that I should serve him. No, it's, it's the kind of forgetfulness where it's just like with an eraser, trying to scratch it out. Almost like, if you've ever seen like someone scratch into wood, you're sanding it down so that that scratch disappears. It's just like, I want to forget the trace of it. This is the, this is the kind of description that Paul is saying that we suffer from this level of idolatry. And idolatry, to be very clear, it's when something other than God occupies the place in our lives that is only fit for God to occupy. And here's the tricky thing about idolatry. Often the things that occupy the place of God, that push God out of the center of our lives, 
are good things. Are things that actually God encourages us to care about, to love, to steward. Maybe it's our relationships. Maybe it's our finances. Maybe it's our career. Read the Bible. There's actually a ton of scripture that speak about how we should relate to money, how we should work, how we should manage our relationships. These things are important to God. And yet when idolatry seeps in, these things cease to be important. They become ultimately important where they become a driving force in our life. They determine the choices we make. Our happiness, the existence of our soul hinges hinges on our relationship to that thing. If it's present, we feel good. If it's absent, we don't know what to do. And if that doesn't offend you, like, what's the big deal? It happens. God should get over it. There's this story I heard that still, I'm going to say it, and I'll be be honest, there's still like some anger, because I feel so frustrated that this actually happened. There's this wonderful book. I highly recommend all of you to get it. It's called Liturgy of the Ordinary. Uh, The woman who wrote this book, phenomenal writer, incredible thinker, and it's a beautiful book. Like, if you ever wanted to actually think about, how do I incorporate my faith into the simplicity of making breakfast and running an errand, she masterfully does this. Do you know that Amazon sold over $270,000 worth of a plagiarized copy of that book? Someone took the book, the image, the description, even the content inside, plagiarized the whole thing, and somehow we're able to upload it to the site, hack the algorithm in some way that when you typed in Liturgy of the Ordinary, it was one of the first hits. $270,000 worth was stolen from this woman and her family. If that doesn't move you, then please loan me some money because clearly you have so much money that if someone stole $270,000 from me, like, ah, pocket change. You know, that, that could change a person's life. And not only that, it was her work. It belonged to her. She deserved the full recognition. No one should have stolen that. It's the height of just cruelty and disrespect. And if you could wrap your mind around what it must feel like for someone to take credit from you, to steal from you to that degree, then we're getting a little closer to imagine what it feels like from God's end to see us replace him with other things all the time. To steal the glory that he deserves and say, you know what? My job is going to get that. My kids are going to get that. God, you're, you're amazing, but this month, my car is more amazing than you. My backyard is more amazing than you. It's just, it's a mind bender to imagine what it feels like for God to see us consciously forget him. 
and push him out of the center of our lives. Here's where this, the way Paul is framing and helping us to understand ourselves is so powerfully helpful for us as we follow Jesus. Because what he's essentially telling us that underneath the sins that we commit is a deeper sin. One way to think about it is that if sin is like a bunch of children, idolatry is the fertile mother that's constantly bearing fruit. If you do enough digging, anytime you and I sin, dishonor God, hurt others, violate his image, whatever is happening at the sinful moment, if you do some investigating and you kind of follow the breadcrumbs, eventually the breadcrumbs are going to lead you to, oh, I began to worship and serve something other than God. And for all of us, it's different. Maybe you were worshiping and serving pleasure. Maybe you were worshiping and serving autonomy. How many, how many don't like to be told what to do? Come on, let's be honest. If we can be honest here. Uh, if you like to be told what to do, congrats. Um, <laughs> life is probably not that stressful for you. But if, if you don't like to be told what to do, all around us we're being told what to do. And it absolutely chafes. It just, it's not great. So maybe it's autonomy. It's like, if I desire autonomy, the idol of that, and it pushes God out of the center, anything that threatens that is going to be perceived as something I'm going to resist. And so if I'm sinning here, maybe if I trace it, it was that that gave birth to it. Maybe it's approval. The things that human beings will do for approval are mind-blowing. To be liked, to be accepted. Hang out with some teenagers. It'll remind you of who we are at the core. And we think we grow past it. We don't. We just make it more sophisticated. You know, at the core, you know who we really are? You ever remember it as a kid? getting one of those notes or giving one, do you like me, yes or no? Remember opening up, it's like, man, what a question, you know? At the core, we're chasing that. And the things that we will do to hear a yes. And sometimes the sins we commit, if you trace it and you search for the idolatry, it's approval. It's power. It's control. It's pleasure. If you took enough time, I'm confident that if you do your own research, follow your own breadcrumbs, you might arrive at some really powerful realizations. This is what drives me. This is what moves me. This is the sin beneath my sin. But something unbelievably powerful is available to us when through Jesus we allow him to transform our idolatrous hearts into a proper rightful worship of the one true God 
everything changes. Life is different. Everything changes. Heard this story um, years ago. I was in Seattle and we did this boat tour. And we took, we went on the shore and we actually came up right by Bill Gates' house. And the tour guy said, this is Bill Gates' house. And they began, they told this fascinating story. Apparently this was, I mean, this was way back when. This was 2005, I think. And so they said that every month he would get sand imported from Jamaica for his, his front house um, that led up to the water. This was an estate of estates. I forget, the, the number of rooms was ridiculous. Apparently, though, imagine he's building a compound right on the water that the building process was absolutely horrific for the neighbors. And these weren't just any kind of neighbors. These were also wealthy neighbors that had power, that were vocal. And imagine for a good part of their life, helicopters are coming in, dropping trucks, all this stuff, dust. And then if you were near there and you wanted to hang out in your pool, nope, ain't gonna happen because all the noise, pollution, and all this stuff. So they began to complain, 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 complain. It reached a fever pitch. But unbeknownst to all of them, there was somebody going around and making them an offer to buy the house. This person worked for Bill Gates. And he told them, say, I work for Mr. Gates, and we're prepared to buy your house full right now. Some people asked for triple, quadruple the worth. Bill Gates had it, and so he bought it. He bought all the houses around him and then called a town meeting. And they all came into the room. Like they're all like kind of excited. They just got a lot of money. And he says, I've bought all your houses. And right now, today, I'm prepared to give you back, each and every one of you, the deeds of your house, and you can keep the money. In fact, I will also commit to pay for the upkeep of your house as long as you are the owner for the rest of your life. Under one condition. No more complaining. <laughs> now, I want you to imagine, before that meeting, the complaints, too much dust, helicopters, too much noise. After that meeting, same people, same situation, neighbors are coming by, hanging out in the backyard. Man, how do you hang out in this disrupted place? Oh, what helicopter? I don't hear a helicopter. <laughs> I don't hear anything. Because fundamentally... Their whole relationship changed because they realized who was the owner? Who was, who was the real source of power in that dynamic? Everything changes inside of us when through Jesus we recognize I'm not the creator. He is. So I don't live assuming I'm the creator, determining right from wrong on my own, making my own life choices without seeking God, seeking his will. When you and I see ourselves in proper relationship to who God is and through the power of the spirit, through the glorious transforming work of the gospel that he rescues idolaters just like you and me. When we let that transform us, 
all of a sudden, life begins to make sense. Because we now find ourselves not living as creators, but as created. We recognize who he is. We recognize who we are not. And we recognize who we are in light of who he is. And now all of a sudden, if our job was God, our job just becomes a job. If our kids were God, our kids just become kids. If our relationships were God, our relationships just become relationships. Because here's the cruel truth. None of those things are strong enough to carry the weight of life that God only is equipped to carry. And when you and I put God-sized expectations on our jobs, on our spouses, on our kids, we crush them. They will not satisfy us. They will leave us empty. Because we're asking these things, these people, these relationships to do for us what only the creator could do. So as we close, as the worship team comes forward, I want to invite us to begin to do some wrestling in our souls. This is a wrestling that you might not get some answers immediately. It may take some time. But some of us, we may get some insights even now. The wrestling that I want to invite us to is to ask ourselves the question, is there something taking the place of God in my life? And if so, what might that thing be? What would it look like for us to name what the scriptures invite us to name? That we're worshipers, but because of sin, we worship in an idolatrous manner. We push the creator out. We actively are forgetting him. We're denying his power, who he is, replacing him with things that could never be him. If that's you today, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, that's our common shared experience. We're all idolaters apart from the saving, intervening, transforming work of Jesus. If left to ourselves, each and every one of us will worship things rather than God. But in Christ, he rescues us. He calls us and says, I'm going to save you from wasting your affections, your love, your devotion on created things as if they were me, the creator. God rescues us from it if we were just to admit and turn from him. Some of us were carrying such heavy things in our souls because idolatry is heavy. It weighs us down. Today, the living God wants to lift that from your heart and give you the lightness that only comes when you worship him. If we came in today worshiping many things, God's heart would be that we would leave here saying yes to worshiping him and him alone. You can love things, but not worship them. You should love your family, love your job, but worship that only belongs to God. Could I invite us to stand? As we stand in this moment, the prayer team is in the back. And at any given moment, as we worship, as we confess, as we pray, 
You can slip out of your seat and go to the back and receive prayer for anything you need prayer for, anything the message might have stirred, the words that were shared earlier. But could I invite us at this time as we begin to turn to God, if you feel comfortable, could I invite you just to stretch out your hands, put them in front of you, raise them, just whatever you feel comfortable with. But it's this posture of surrender that I'm inviting us into, a posture that says, God, I'm here to lay down, but also to take up whatever you are putting in my heart to take up right now, to take up your love, to take up your grace. Let's turn to God together.